They say hindsight is 2020. After something happens, we look back and, and we have a better perspective after it happened. If, if we had known before it happened what we know after it happened, we would have done some things differently. Hindsight is 2020. In July of 1994, the summer after my freshman year in high school, Jeff Bezos quit his job at a New York hedge fund. Uh, drove across the country to Seattle and rented a house and began Amazon in his garage. He personally mailed books to customers from post offices. In 26 years, Amazon grew from a garage to revenues in the hundreds of billions. Now, would you, at that time, would you have looked at Jeff Bezos's garage business and thought, man, this thing's going to explode? This is going to get really, really big. In May of 1997, uh, three years after launch, Amazon held its initial public offering at $18 a share. As a senior in high school, if I would have just invested $100, and I could have come up with the money, $100. If I would have invested that, that stock would be worth over $120,000 today. Hindsight is 2020. Many didn't see it coming. When, when Amazon went public, it had made no major profits. Market analysts and experts poo-pooed the idea of Amazon's initial public offering and believed that the company would never make it big. They, they didn't think that Amazon could take on the big bookstores like Barnes & Noble. Hindsight is 2020. Conventional wisdom often misses the significance and bright future of little things. Because little things often seem insignificant. Tom Brady went in the sixth round of the 2000 NFL draft. He was the 199th pick overall. The NFL only drafted 254 players. He began as a fourth string quarterback. He now has seven Super Bowl rings, more than any NFL franchise, including my dearly beloved Steelers. He started small, and, and in time, his career just grew to epic proportions. When Jesus chose an illustration for his kingdom, he did not choose something big and something significant. He chose a mustard seed. A mustard seed begins quite small, but then it grows, and it grows into something quite sizable. That's how Jesus wants people thinking about his kingdom. It starts small, but it grows, and it advances, and it expands, and its culmination, it's matchless. Not everyone notices it. Sadly, many miss its glory, but one day everyone will see, and for some very sadly, it will be too late, for they failed to enter the kingdom when they could have. So here's what I want us to think about this morning. The kingdom of Christ may appear small and insignificant in the world, but take heart, take heart. It is growing gloriously as its consummation approaches the world finds the idea of a crucified, risen, and sovereign Christ ridiculous Boring, underwhelming, unimportant, even offensive because they are spellbound with what they think is big in the world. But the kingdom of Christ far surpasses worldly things in power, in significance, in worth. The world just can't see it. 
If we're not careful to believe Jesus, his kingdom will be eclipsed for us by the things of this world, not because they are bigger, not because they are better, but because we hold the things of this world closer to our eyes and can't see the superiority and glory of his kingdom. It is with the eyes of faith that we look to Christ the King and see and experience his supremacy and his power to save and sanctify his people from their sins and misery. With the eyes of faith, we see glimpses of the consummated kingdom, only glints of it, but we will see it in all its grandeur at the return of Christ. We must not lose heart. We must be patient. What we see on the horizon Well, it may look small now, but it is approaching quickly and its immensity and glory will be seen in full in time. Here's some review. Jesus taught in parables with hidden meanings. Why? Well, the crowds were seeing kingdom realities, but not seeing. They were hearing the gospel of the kingdom, but not hearing. Their hearts had grown dull. They didn't understand Jesus, nor did they want to understand Jesus. Cryptic parables were an act of divine judgment, something that further hardened already hardened hearts. Strident unbelief was preventing the world from seeing the glory of Christ and his coming kingdom. Jesus was also graciously and powerfully enlightening his disciples. He told them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. They had received God's grace. Therefore, they saw and they heard and they believed. They came to know and believe that the king had truly come. And by speaking in parables, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy and revealing the eternal mysteries of the kingdom of God that had been concealed from the beginning of time. Verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. See, God had progressively revealed the gospel of the kingdom through history until the king himself arrived and conquered through righteousness, crucifixion, resurrection, Jesus used parables to reveal the gospel of salvation and how one enters into his kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in the crucified and risen Christ alone. It's important to know the difference between the kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom consummated. This can trip people up. Again, Dr. Steve Ball said, the kingdom of God proper is the fully eschatological new heavens and new earth inhabited by the redeemed, resurrected saints in glory and incorruptibility where the triune God triumphantly rules supreme in the presence of his people forever. That's the consummated kingdom that we are anticipating with joy that we, that we want to come and, and God will dwell with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's coming in due time. But that kingdom has been inaugurated today. The kingdom has begun. God resurrects his people in Christ. He makes them alive and has begun his reign and rule in their hearts and lives. Christ the king is with us now, brothers and sisters, sanctifying us and putting sin to death in us by his spirit. 
He is defending us, preserving us, and keeping us. The kingdom is growing and advancing in the world and will come in completeness at the return of Christ. The parables help us see the ways in which the kingdom is a present reality as well as a future reality. The parables are quite encouraging for those who have eyes and ears to see and hear. The parable of the sower shows how the king sows and plants the word of the kingdom deeply in his chosen people, how the word of the kingdom establishes deep roots in his people, and how the word of the kingdom produces fruit in his people. And yet, there the unbelievers are rejecting the word in various ways. The parable of the weeds shows how the sons of the kingdom are planted all throughout the world, and they are growing. And they are flourishing. But alongside them are unbelievers, those who are persistently rejecting Christ, the sons of the devil, as as Jesus talks about, who oppose the sons of the kingdom. But at the end of the age, when the sons of the evil one are sentenced to hell, the sons of the kingdom will gather to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The parables correct misconceptions about God's kingdom. While pronouncing judgment on unbelievers, the parables give hope and assurance to believers, to the sons and daughters of the kingdom. Jesus gave much hope to his disciples, but by doing this, by establishing right kingdom expectations, he corrected their misconceptions about his dominion and power and conquest by teaching them how to see and experience his, con- his dominion, the conquest of the enemies of sin, guilt, the devil, even death itself. He taught them that his conquest comes through suffering, shame, crucifixion, resurrection. Between Jesus' preaching the parable of the weeds to the crowds, and Jesus explaining the parable of the weeds to his disciples, Matthew inserts two other short parables, the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And we don't have Jesus' explanation of these parables, but the context of the other parables helps us out. It helps us to interpret, to know what's going on here. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven are about the kingdom of heaven. Israel was expecting the Christ to bring a cataclysmic, earthly, geographical, and socio-political kingdom, but Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom in a much different way, a small and less apparent way, but a way that would eventually prove to be absolutely outstanding. Jesus didn't want his disciples to be disheartened at smallness, at slow growth, at at perceived insignificance. Imagine, some of you have gardens, but imagine that you are planting a garden, some seeds, with a five-year-old, a little girl. We'll say it's a little girl planting seeds, and she's excitedly planting seeds in the garden. She loves gardening and loves being with you, and then as you tell her all about the marvelous corn and the beans and the tomatoes and you're going through all of that, you sit there in lawn chairs together. And and these are the good lawn chairs, the webbing ones. Do you know what I'm talking about? I love those old school webbing lawn chairs. They're my absolute favorite. And, And so you sit there watching for growth. 
well, this poor little girl, she's going to lose interest very quickly. She's not going to want to sit there with you, maybe in the chairs, because they're just that good. But, but, but watch her face as the sprouts start coming. Watch, watch her joy when eventually it's growing higher and growing higher over the course of many days, and then soon the corn is so high and it's casting a shadow over her, towering over her, and then look at her face when she is, is gnawing on the corn on the cob and just bringing the corn, and she loves it. Now, if the disciples knew how to see the kingdom inaugurated, they would be encouraged and equipped to advance the kingdom by gospel ministry, and they did just that. What if they expected everything right away? They would, they would be discouraged. So Jesus taught his disciples how to think about the kingdom so they would not lose heart during the very difficult gospel ministry that awaited them. Jesus, he helped them connect the dots and readied them to advance the kingdom in the world through fearless gospel preaching, which they devoted their lives to. Gospel ministry would be very, very hard for the disciples. They would suffer and they would die for the gospel's advance in the world. And so they needed to be able to see how the king grows his kingdom in the world. They needed the assurance that smallness would indeed grow into greatness. They needed that. How it must have excited them to learn that the king had come and was, was actually going to war for them. He was trouncing sin. He was trouncing the devil. He was trouncing the world. He was even trouncing death and reconciling them to God. And the crucifixion and resurrection of their king would confirm the dominion, power, and triumph of their king and their eternal life with the king in his consummated kingdom. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? They got it later. They, they, they would be like, oh my goodness, this is what he was talking about. He won the war for us, for all of his people throughout history. He saved us from our enemies, from sin, guilt, the devil, the world, the flesh, by dying in our place to pay our debt, to liberate us from the tyranny of the devil, to secure for us a a place at his table in his consummated kingdom. By his shed blood, he has brought us from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of light, from damnation to glorification with the king. They eventually got it. And then they preached it, and they wrote it down so that we would get it. So that we would get it. These parables, they hearten us today, brothers and sisters, when we struggle to see the power and growth and glory of Christ's kingdom. These parables are loving instruction from our king to help us understand his kingdom. First, the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus taught this to the crowds, his disciples listened in. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now that makes sense. The man planted his field. This, this tiny grain of mustard seed fell from his hand. Today, a mustard seed is about one millimeter wide. Very tiny. Jesus is comparing 
the kingdom of heaven to a really small seed. That's intriguing. His, his point is smallness. Why would a king use smallness to describe his kingdom? The man in the parable plants this tiny seed in his field, or as Luke says, his garden. Mustard shrubs, they could grow to about 12 feet high, maybe higher in great conditions. A mustard plant, um, it, it doesn't immediately grow to 12 feet in like 4.8 seconds. You plant it and boom, there's the tree. That's not how it happens. Um, but eventually, it works through the stages of growth. Sprout, seedling, vegetative, budding, flowering, ripening, and then right there it is, the big tree. It took some time to grow, but it was alive along the way, and it was doing really well, and it was growing and growing until it reached about 12 feet. In the end, it's the largest of all of the garden plants. And the birds, the birds are now coming. They're flocking to make nests in its branches. That's what the kingdom is like, according to Jesus. Jesus didn't teach the kingdom of heaven. It's like, it's like a massive army which storms this great city and, and overcomes it with military tactics and might, and the king walks the blood-soaked streets to take his rightful place on the throne. He didn't talk that way. That's not the imagery that he used. He chose something small. Why? Well, that's what we need to figure out, and that's what we need to believe, and that's what we need to draw comfort and hope from. The parable of the mustard seed explained. When thinking about the parable of the mustard seed, it's helpful to think about the parable of the weeds which came right before. In that parable, the, the field is the world. Jesus planted the sons of the kingdom in the world to grow until harvest at the end of the age. And now Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven in the world growing from small to large. It, it certainly seems like Jesus is saying that the kingdom is in the world. That, that's what these parables seem to be saying. He's, he's, he's talking about the kingdom growing from an inconspicuous beginning into something, just growing and growing into something significant, something massive, something glorious. He's talking in terms of modest inauguration and glorious consummation. The disciples would not experience the full glory of the kingdom right away in time. They would. And the same is true for us today. I think the following study note summarizes Jesus' thought quite well. Quote, the inbreaking of God's kingdom seems insignificant, almost imperceptible like a tiny seed or like yeast hidden in bread dough. Yet its influence will eventually spread throughout the nations. Certainly in the first century, the kingdom of heaven appears to be nothing in comparison with Rome, yet it will prove to be much greater. End quote. And that's right. The, the, the church is scattered throughout the world. Jesus the king arrived but didn't inaugurate his kingdom with pomp and circumstance. You, you've... You've probably seen um, pictures of the Third Reich uh, way back in the day with those massive military parades. I mean, very impressive, very impressive. That's not what Jesus came to do. 
As a kid, and I have some kids here, I loved Roman soldiers. Is it the plumes on the helmets and the capes and the armor and the, just everything, the swords, the shields? Love it. Look great. Still love the look of all that. Um, the Roman Empire was dominant. I mean, dominant, prevailing, expansive, wealthy, outstanding, we could say. Jesus didn't come to rule like Hitler or Caesar. Jesus conquered through obeying the law, suffering, crucifixion, resurrection. Jesus advanced his kingdom by saving people from their sins, thus bringing them into his kingdom and under his glorious authority. The the human crisis Today and throughout history is not political, it's not financial, it's not temporal, it's spiritual. That's the problem with the world. The world's problems, they are many. We could sit here and we could list tons and tons and tons of problems in the world, but the foremost problem of humanity, the problem from which all other problems arise is that people are at enmity with God And they need to be reconciled to him. Jesus came to save people from their sins and misery. You have to think differently to understand Christ's kingdom. You can't think like the world thinks. It's not like other kingdoms because it's so much greater than other kingdoms. Far superior. Okay. Christ compared his kingdom to something very small and seemingly insignificant, growing into something large and quite significant. Through that illustration, how was Jesus helping his disciples see the kingdom's growth in the world? How was he serving them? What what was he uncovering? What secrets was he making sure that they understood? How do we see the kingdom today? Since the kingdom has been inaugurated, we should expect to see it expanding. That's what we should expect. We should expect to see Christ conquering in some way, reigning and ruling in some way. If we think in worldly terms, folks, we're going to miss it. We need to think in gospel terms. I think the Reformed catechisms uh, are very helpful when thinking about Christ's kingdom. We pray in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. What's that about? What are are we actually asking for uh, to bring his kingdom? What what is that? What, What are we asking for when we pray that? And the Heidelberg Catechism explains that to mean this. So rule us by thy word and spirit that more and more we submit to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against thee, and every conspiracy against thy holy word. Do all this until the fullness of thy kingdom comes, wherein thou shalt be all in all. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains thy kingdom come to mean we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. And that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Those statements differentiate between the kingdom inaugurated now and consummated then. The Heidelberg refers to the consummated kingdom by saying, until the fullness of thy kingdom comes. 
And the Westminster says that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. But there is a sense in which Christ the King is already reigning and ruling, a sense in which the kingdom is already in the world and expanding. Heidelberg and, and Westminster bring this to light. So think about this. How did Jesus crush the head of Satan? How did he do that? How did he win? How did he conquer the serpent? Through his suffering, through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, the head of the serpent is crushed. Jesus is graciously and powerfully rescuing people from the kingdom of Satan and bringing them graciously into his kingdom of righteousness. He is saving and subduing his people through gospel preaching and the kingdom of grace. It is advancing. Jesus is increasing his church. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's happening now. Jesus is overcoming Satan's power by saving and sanctifying you, people of God. Loosing you from the power of Satan and, and growing in you godliness. Jesus is ruling and governing you by his spirit, by his word, teaching you what to believe and what to do and empowering you to do it and sustaining you through it. This is what you ask for when you pray, thy kingdom come. And he will answer you someday by returning for you. But all of that is hard to see when you're distracted by the pomp and circumstance of the world. God must give you eyes to see the kingdom growing. If the disciples expected the kingdom of Christ to advance uh, similar to Rome's advance, my goodness, they would not only believe and do the wrong things, they would be so discouraged and disheartened. Why isn't it coming like that? Boy, is Christ really the king? It just would have brought so many problems for them. But, but if they thought about the kingdom rightly in the way that Jesus taught them, well, then they would be hopeful they would actually be equipped and heartened for true kingdom ministry and true kingdom advance in the world. The same is true for us today. How did Jesus begin his kingdom in the world? Small, very small. He chose 12 ordinary men. We could probably say painfully ordinary men. Really ordinary, regular guys, men of little repute. He didn't choose Caesar. He didn't choose Herod. He didn't choose Pilate or Roman generals or legions of soldiers. He chose fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. They, they were unexceptional men. Why choose them? So God alone gets the glory. I, I like how Dr. Morris put it. The kingdom may be considered insignificant in its beginnings and was doubtless despised by many in Jesus' day because of this. But in the end, its growth would be extensive. It would be a very great kingdom indeed. And then Dr. Morris said this, there is also the thought of the continuity between the seed and the grown plant. 
It is from the mustard seed and that seed only that the mustard plant grew. So it is from Jesus and his little band that the mighty kingdom of heaven would emerge. Jesus wasn't enlisting soldiers to take up arms and to fight with swords. He he chose 12 ordinary men and he taught them the gospel of the kingdom. They learned who the king is and they learned what the king is capable of and what the king came to do. They were learning this. His ministry said a lot about his kingdom, preaching, teaching, praying, fasting, obeying, healing, giving, forgiving, saving, redeeming, reconciling. His ministry communicates his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, gospel preaching is not esteemed in the world. What we're doing here is not esteemed in the world. It doesn't get all the attention. Think about Stephen Colbert. Think about Jimmy Fallon, Oprah, and Jim Gaffigan, who's hilarious, by the way, Jim Gaffigan. And the baby shark dance, and Ed Sheeran, and professional sports, that's where the hype is. They get billions and billions of views. But their glory is underwhelming. Every week around the world, hundreds of millions of people gather to hear from the King of Kings and to celebrate His supremacy over all things. His glory is overwhelming. But you see it in a different way now. Hundreds of millions are right now seeing the glory of the King in the gospel, but but they, we, don't see it in all of its glory, yet, yet, one day the supremacy of Christ the King will be absolutely unmistakable. Now what are we to make of the birds nesting in the branches? What, well, I'm not exactly sure. Not exactly sure what to do with that, but it seems to be, as one note put it, an image of safety and prosperity under a king's reign an image of safety and prosperity under a king's reign. In scriptures, uh, trees can signify messianic glory and blessing. Whatever the birds represent exactly, it seems fitting that those birds find their well-being in the kingdom. Perhaps Jesus is alluding to the nations coming into the kingdom and finding their eternal well-being with Christ. Now, I want you to think about your sanctifying journey with Christ. I want you to think, just for a little bit, about how you have grown through the years, grown spiritually through the years. You probably had some mountaintops, some some big moments that, that you can remember. Man, God was really working. Some big mountaintop moments, but most of it has been your king feeding you his word feeding you through his word and sacraments week in and week out. And it often seems so small. Sometimes it seems so insignificant. It feels insignificant, but you're growing. You're growing. That's the king being the king in you. 
Too many people lust for signs and wonders and earth-shattering experiences in the church. Oh, they're looking for lights and camera and action so that they can feel something. They they have what's called an over-realized eschatology. They expect too many of the kingdom blessings now. Expectations of pomp and circumstance can be very, very distracting from the powerful and sufficient means the king provides to expand his kingdom and grow his church, to grow you. These means, they often appear, they often seem quite small. Insignificant by comparison. People will fill stadiums, but here... But make no mistake, the king is subduing a people for himself and growing and protecting them in the redemption he achieved for them through word and sacraments, regular, simple word and sacraments ministry in the local church. The parable of the leaven, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. In this parable, it's not a man. It's a woman. That's significant. I mean, that's great. Jesus is pulling a woman into this, and she's a hard-working woman. I think we would have liked this lady. She is very hard-working. The woman is making bread. That sounds delicious. That's, don't you love when women make bread? That's great. Not that men can't make it, but women are good at this. They can, they can do good bread. And she takes leaven and she kneads it into a large amount of flour. We don't know the exact measurement. I did some studies on this. They, scholars can't pin it down exactly what the measurement was. It was more rough back then, I think. And, but it's a lot of dough, a lot of dough. And it probably could feed around 100 people. This is a lot. And the leaven, this little bit of leaven, mixes throughout the dough, and there's a chemical reaction which lightens and softens the dough. Just a little bit of leaven for a large amount of dough. A few weeks ago, and folks, I I don't do a lot of cooking. I mean, I like grilling, and I like to cook every now and again, and I'll fixate on some recipe or something and say, I'm going to do that. I made pad thai once, but I'm I'm not—it didn't turn out great. You'll have it better in a restaurant. But anyway, I made homemade pita bread uh, and chicken shawarma. Oh, my goodness. It turned out great. I'm just, it's, you know, it was great. And, and what I did, I mixed a little bit of yeast into the mixture, and then I mixed it using the dough hook. Do you have this? The dough hook in the uh, KitchenAid mixers. That's a great thing, by the way. It's doing all of that, and then I put the pita into this big glass, the dough, into this big glass bowl, and I covered it with saran wrap, and then in time, this thing is like, boom, it's blowing, not literally blowing up, but it was puffing up, and uh, and, uh, more and more, and, and so I took it out, and then from there, I worked with it. Leaven mixes with the flour and oil, and it gets all throughout the mixture, and it makes the whole thing rise. Now, what does that mean? Why is Jesus taking that imagery and connecting it to the kingdom? The parable of the leaven explained. In these two parables, 
you'll notice that the focus is not the grandeur or the glory of the kingdom. That's what people expected. That was already in their minds. Man, this kingdom's gonna be incredible. It's gonna be huge. Absolutely. That was assumed. He took a shocking angle on it. His focus was what? Smallness. I think both parables emphasize the small beginnings of the kingdom and how the kingdom grows and how it expands. But perhaps there's a slight difference between the meanings of these two parables. D.A. Carson noted this. If there is a distinction between this parable and the last one, it is that the mustard seed suggests extensive growth and the yeast intensive transformation. Intensive transformation. So let's be careful and think here. Should we expect to see the world Christianized? And some would argue that that's what this passage is saying. There's going to be this mass Christianization of the entire earth. I I don't think that's Jesus' point. I think it's more of an inner transformation in the church throughout the world. And I agree with Craig Blomberg who says, neither parable depicts the culmination of the kingdom so impressively as to justify grandiose dreams of Christianizing the earth. But each does caution against a defeatism or siege mentality when Christian witness seems temporarily ineffective. One day God causes, God's causes will triumph. So though I don't think the gospel will Christianize all the earth before Christ returns, I do think these parables express the growth of the kingdom in the world. I do think that's what they're talking about. The the church is growing throughout all the earth in all the nations of the world. And I like an idea that I encountered this week in a couple resources. One note said, the kingdom is indeed active, though not fully visible to the world, because it begins with an inner transformation of the heart, end quote. And when I think about the leaven, I think there's a parallel there. I think that makes good sense. Might the leaven picture an inner transformation of the hearts of God's people? Dr. William Hendrickson said it like this, that this yeast of the rule of Christ in human hearts, lives, and spheres has already exerted wholesome influence in thousands of ways and that this influence is still continuing is clear to all who have eyes to see, end quote. We could say the kingdom or the reign and rule of Christ, the king, is like leaven mixing in human hearts in all spheres of their life and is changing them in myriad ways. They more and more submit to Christ the King in every aspect of their life. Do do we not see the reign and rule of Christ in one another's spiritual growth? We're not the people we used to be and that's the King's work. Don't we see that? Aren't we encouraged by the King's work in the world? As we grow and mature and become more like Jesus, it is our king overcoming our sinful nature, overcoming the power of the devil and conforming us to himself. This is his kingly work of redemption, his kingly work of restoration. In this parable, leaven is actually good. Actually, it's really, really good in this parable. Certainly, the kingdom is bearing fruit in the world, is it not? Like leaven, 
It's transforming God's people who are then bringing good things into the world. I think the leaven pictures the work of the king in his people, transforming them, growing them. And so, of course, more generally then, the kingdom is expanding in all the world as the church grows and as it impacts the world, as the light of Christ impacts the world for good. Now, how do we pull all of this together? Taking heart in the growth of the kingdom. Taking heart in the growth of the kingdom. Folks, following Jesus is not easy. Not easy. We get discouraged. We get disheartened. I preach the gospel almost every Sunday of the year, and quite often, honestly, I don't see any real change sometimes. You know, where's the change? And that discourages me. Where, where, where's the change? Where is this? And I, I can sometimes wonder, does gospel preaching even work? What am I doing? If things aren't working, shaking, moving, people are really changing here. Am I just wasting my time? And you know, I think that's what Jesus was guarding his disciples against. He, he, he taught them to overcome thinking like that. I need to repent of that kind of thinking and I need to believe the word of my king, of what he's doing through the gospel. There's power in the gospel. So maybe you get discouraged that someone very close to you, someone that you love, just is not bowing in submission to Christ. They don't get it. Maybe you're just, they're not believing in Christ. Take heart. Take heart. Christ has not returned yet. He's he's not returned yet. The kingdom is still growing in the world. It will be glorious. He promised you that. And you will be quite surprised. Trust the word of your king and see your sanctification, how you grow to be more and more like the king. See that as the kingdom's advance. When someone gets saved and when someone is baptized and their family is baptized, see that as the king's advance. When when you are convicted about that sin and you're like, I don't feel good about that. When when you realize, you know, I I really ought to confess about that. And when you face a temptation and, and you're like, whoa, this time I got through that. My mind didn't go there. My mouth didn't go there. Whoa, wow, he's really working him. That's the advance of the kingdom. Take heart, be encouraged. I need these words as much as you do. I need to take heart and be encouraged. The, The world, the world may have pomp and circumstance, but we have a crucified Christ. We have a risen Christ. We have a conquering Christ. We have a supreme Christ. We have a sovereign Christ. The pomp and circumstance of the world does not compare. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of Christ may appear small and insignificant, in the world, but take heart, be encouraged. It is growing gloriously as its consummation approaches.